Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China calls for efforts to advance the two-state solution in a bid to resolve the newly erupted conflict between Israel and Palestine. Study shows that China-Europe free trade has served 25 European countries and more than 100 cities in 11 Asian countries and regions over the past decade. And Malaysia is promoting its currency for international trade to reduce reliance on the U.S. dollar. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. China has reiterated its call for the international community to pursue efforts to implement the two-state solution in a bid to resolve the newly erupted conflict between Israel and Palestine. China's special envoy on the Middle East issue Jai Jun made the remarks in a phone call with the Egypt's Minister on Palestinian Affairs. In his call with the Assistant Minister of the Palestine Department in the Egyptian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Jai said, an end to the conflict lies in implementing the two-state solution. He added that China calls for an immediate ceasefire and will provide humanitarian support to the Palestinian people. So for more on this and the ongoing conflict, joining us are Dr. Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University, and Dr. John Gong, Professor with the University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. Glad Thank to be you. Here. Good to be with you. Professor Gong, there are many concerns over the escalation of this conflict. What's your assessment of the current situation? What do you think are the possible outcomes for the future of this conflict? Well, from what I have been reading, uh, the current uh, situation is that uh, the the Israel uh, uh, Defense Force, the IDF, has cleaned up the the village that has been taken over by the Hamas terrorists, the last few days, uh, and uh, um, it has amassed a troops of uh, in the amount of uh, 300,000 uh, soldiers uh, surrounding Gaza right now. Uh, this um, aerial bombing uh, constantly, and uh, my guess is, uh, um, you know, the the, the Israeli force is going to enter Gaza. They're going to control Gaza. Um, the uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has stated that uh, its purpose is to totally eliminate the Hamas forces uh, in Gaza and end the rule of Hamas in Gaza. So what it means is that um, the troops on the ground need to have to uh, move in and uh, uh, to take a total control of the, the Gaza area. So what it means is that, uh, um, in my view, it's going to be bloody battles ahead. Uh, There'll be a lot of casualties, both on the civilian side as well as the military side. Uh, this is very unfortunate that that has come to this stage. But I think this scenario that I'm talking about um, is, is quite difficult to avoid, to be honest with you. Professor Barton, what potential developments do you foresee for the future of this conflict? Well, in the short to medium term, I'm, I'm really pessimistic and very anxious. In, in the longer term, it's possible that this may recalibrate the situation, perhaps as we'll discuss later and open the way to lasting political solutions. But in the foreseeable future, um, I, I think the, mis- the, the my fear is immense suffering. Um, I mean, there's been immense suffering for the people of Israel, but immense suffering now commencing for the people of Gaza. 
Hamas, when it launched this terrorist attacks, surely knew that it was provoking a response from Israel and the IDF uh, in Gaza, and yet it doesn't care about the consequences for the people of Gaza. And I think that principle of provocation is important. Um, this has been described as Israel's 9-11 moment, and I think that's not a, not a bad analogy. Uh, the point, though, with that analogy is to learn the lesson of US and Western response to 9-11. Uh, there was understandable anger and outrage, uh, but that served Al-Qaeda's purposes. It, it, that provocation ended up um, allowing Al-Qaeda to achieve things that otherwise couldn't have done without uh, without being provoked. I'm afraid that um, Hamas wants the IDF to go into the Gaza Strip. Uh, that's home turf for Hamas. It, it has who knows how many hundreds of kilometres of tunnels and, 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 and secret establishments that will make it really gruesome and difficult uh, for the IDF personnel, but also for the people of Gaza, to have an urban warfare situation there. I'm not sure that the IDF can easily prevail either. So I think it's a mistake out of anger to mm. just rush into Gaza and say we're going to eliminate Hamas, because I'm not sure that it's possible, and I'm not sure that um, Israel's thought through the cost of whatever they can achieve, what it's going to cost them. Professor Barton, given the high civilian casualties and displacement in Gaza, what do you think are the humanitarian challenges in the region they are facing now, and how can the international community address these issues effectively? Well, I think the first thing to understand is, even though Israel has warned the people of Gaza to sort of, you know, move to safe places, it's kind of an impossible situation. I mean, Gaza is has been described as an open air prison. It, you know, it's not easy to, to to enter or to leave Gaza. So people can't leave the Strip and go somewhere else. There's nowhere else to go. Uh, the Egyptians are not going to open their gates and allow them to go westwards. Um, it's true that maybe they can move away from some sites that uh, Israel has indicated are going to be hit. But the reality is many people will get caught up in those airstrikes. That's awful. So the immediate need is to provide um, safe spaces for the uh, people of Gaza to go to where they, they, they can be protected. This is also a very, very poor community, a very young community. Half the population are, uh, are children. Um, they have very little capacity to survive without power, without water, without food. They, they don't have stockpiles and resources. So giving them a safe place, first of all, safe places, um, working with the uh, Israeli government to coordinate that, deconflict it, and, and making sure that medical supplies, water and food gets through. Uh, at the moment, that's not happening. That doesn't, we, we are not aware of planning for that to happen. That's critically important. Otherwise, um, the people who uh, die and suffer as a result indirectly of, of this military operation um, you know, may exceed those who are, are directly impacted by uh, buildings collapsing and, and being caught in munitions. Professor Gong, with the increasing concerning situation on the ground, what's your take on the humanitarian challenges arising in Gaza due to the significant uh, civilian casualties and uh, displacement? Well, it's increasingly become a critical challenge, actually. Uh, 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 you, you know, uh, when war is going on, there will inevitably be uh, civilian casualties. Um, Israel has also cut off water and electricity and food supplies to uh, to Gaza. So I think um, very soon we're going to face a, a humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, on top of the war, the casualties, the bloody fighting, uh, there will also be uh, starvation very soon, I think. Um, people are not going to last very long. So, um, but certainly I, I don't think this is going to stop the, uh, the idea from uh, keep fighting. Uh, I think their objective is totally... Uh, 
uh, destroy the uh, uh, Hamas presence in Gaza. And uh, so they would, in my view, if not bomb block by block, they would at least fight block by, by block. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, go through every inch of land in Gaza, uh, square inch of land in Gaza. So so I think it's going to be a you know, very bloody battle. And, and certainly, you know, it, it, there's a need for providing these uh, humanitarian assistance to the civilians. Um, but who's going to do that? How you do that? Uh, these are huge challenges. Um, I, I really don't have a good answer for that. You know, it's, it's so sad to see um, that um, you know, people in Gaza um, are essentially the victims of, um, you know, the, the, the ruthless actions taken by the government they actually have elected. So, uh, you know, what can we do? So uh, um, it, it, it's just it's a very, very hard and difficult situation. Professor Gong, when we're talking about solutions to these challenges, China has reiterated its call for the international community to pursue efforts to implement the two-state solution. How do you perceive such a suggestion? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, when the Chinese government uh, talks about a two-state solution, they're really talking about I mean, the, the Palestinian state. Is really, they're really talking about a Palestinian uh, a government, a state, um, led by the um, the government uh, in Ramara, which is the uh, uh, the Palestinian Liberation Army, the Fatah, uh, which has nothing to do, which is actually um, you know has a hostile relationship with the regime in Gaza, uh, which is the Hamas, as we all know it. Um, so um, the the two state solution um, is it, not going to be a uh, short term cure for this ongoing war in. Uh, in Gaza right now, um, and, and 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 second, I think um, you know the the prospect of a two-state solution, uh, in my view, it, it's not that um, close. Um, it, it's very difficult on the ground, and technical difficulties, and I think most importantly, uh, there is a, a lack of political support within the state of Israel for a. Uh, two-state solution right now for Palestinian states uh, to be established in the West Bank um, due to various reasons. Um, I think um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a mountain of difficulties. I mean, look at the demographic change. The Israeli people, you know, you're seeing more and more, uh, a larger percentage of the more religious people, uh, a larger percentage of the right-wing people, especially being forced by the war going on right now in, in, in Gaza. Um, and also, um, uh, and also, I think the the fact that the you know the the liberal the left wing is getting increasingly marginalized. Um, the uh, um, uh, so 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 you know, overall, in my view, uh, there's a there's a there's a lack of political support for that in Israel, and, mm-hmm. and we know that it takes two to tango. So uh, it's a nice idea. It's been it's actually an old idea, been around for many years, but. Uh, uh, it's not going anywhere uh, because uh, the Israeli entire Israeli society is not supportive of this. So I think um, it, you know there's a, a huge challenge in that aspect. Professor Barden, how do you interpret China's suggestion in the context of the ongoing tensions, and what potential impact could international efforts toward this solution have on this situation? Well, I think uh, China has the potential to, to play a role that other nations can't, by, by dint of its size and by the fact that it hasn't been involved in this 
peace process much in the past. So that opens up a space. They, they can come in as a, as a new player. Um, as long as China understands this is hard and there won't be quick and easy victories and they're likely to be criticised even with the best of intentions. But I think, uh, you know, we, as Professor Gong was saying, there's a lack of political will. But the one hope in terms of getting that political will, which is necessary, is that people come to realise that they're not going to have security without a just and durable political solution. So that they can't uh, manufacture, I mean, no amount of funding of the Israeli Defence Forces or beefing up of um, uh, intelligence or you know, locking down gates, etc., is going to make them secure. Uh, they've tried that, and I think what the events of the last week have shown is that that's a failure. Um, the, 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 the thought was that with Gaza locked down, that would control Hamas and keep them focused inside Gaza. That hasn't been working. Um, so if people come to realise they're going to have to have a political solution if they want security, that's the beginning of, of a way forward. Uh, the old players, uh, both on the Israeli side but also on the Palestinian side, in, including in Gaza, have proven not to be up to the challenge of, of trying to find a way forward. So trying to bring newer, younger players um, in, into the conversation is hard, but it's, it's uh, I think, the only chance for changing things. Um, uh, it's hard to see Abbas playing a, a positive role in, uh, in the West Bank at the moment with the Palestinian Authority. He's doesn't seem to have the capacity or the energy or the or the conviction to to play a role. So other parties will have to come in. In the case of Gaza, it's really hard. Obviously, Hamas um, has been involved in a heinous terrorist uh, act, uh, an incredibly brutal and provocative act. Apparently, uh, part of the reason they were able to keep operational security so tight was that the militant wing of Hamas didn't let the political wing know what they were planning. And that opens the possibility that... Um, if the Israeli government is prepared to uh, have this imagination and look realistically at what's possible, that they could still work with some on the political side of Hamas and completely isolate the militant side of Hamas. That, you know, drive a wedge in Hamas, that, that's what they need to do because they're not going to simply go into the Gaza Strip and have a, a quick um, or lasting or, or comprehensive military victory. And somebody wants, needs to, to rule, uh, administer the Gaza Strip. Israel pulled out almost 20 years ago it doesn't have the capacity uh, or the interest to go back in and administer Gaza. So there needs to be realistic stock taking about what the political options are mm. and then working towards finding that solution. Professor Barden, are there any specific lessons can be drawn from the past negotiations between Israel and Palestine that might inform the feasibility of the two-state solution or are the political solutions today, given the historical conflicts and the failed attempts at peace? I think one of the lessons is we can't just rely on old political actors. Um, uh, Yasser Arafat, um, you know, was one of the main elements spoiling the peace process in the past. In the past, it's not all his fault. There are structural issues, it's true, but but he could have played a constructive role. He played in the end a, a role that was destructive. Um, Abbas at the moment is not playing a constructive role. We need to find new actors. Uh, and. If you fall back on the argument, well, they need to have, you know, uh, popular support, they need to sort of be uh, victorious at elections uh, for them to be the, the key negotiators, that's a recipe for failure, given what we're dealing with. I mean, the reason that Hamas was left uh, in power in the Gaza Strip was on the basis that they, they had, they had um, achieved the highest result in the, in the last election of the Gaza Strip and then brutally enforced that electoral success into um, driving all the competitors out. Um, and that's, you know, that's constantly over the last two decades produced horrible results, and now it's no longer sustainable. 
So we need to find new interlocutors, new younger um, uh, community leaders from all sides and not pull back on uh, sort of bureaucratic thinking about who is the, is, is the leader and who can be used. Professor Gong, what's your take? What insights can we gain from previous peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine, uh, considering the historical conflicts and uh, failed attempts at peace to uh, somehow inform or shape the feasibility of a political solution in the current context? Um, I, I think it's, um, it's proven to be increasingly difficult. I think, you know, a, a friend was talking about the younger generation of Palestinian leaders, uh, you know, it's a great idea in my view. But the problem is that I think the younger generation uh, is uh, uh, becoming um, more sort of uh, anti-Israel, uh, more um, uh, militant in a way. Uh, and, and so, so uh, it, you know, if you look at the younger generation, I think there's a lot of people among the Palestinians, both in Gaza as well as in West Bank, uh, uh, advocating a sort of a uh, more of a, a confrontation approach approach uh, towards the Israelis. Uh, so um, um, it, 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 I think um, you know it, this is a this is probably the, the the most difficult problem faced by human beings in modern history. Um, you know you have these two peoples uh, who are fighting over you know a small piece of land that can be uh, traced back many many years in history. Um, and, and on top of this, there's a religious belief behind it. Um, and, 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 you know, and there's a history of wars, even modern times, there were five wars already. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to uh, reconcile these differences. I think probably the closest time that a peace deal is within reach um, was during the Clinton time, you know, when Yisaf uh, Yabin and, and, and and, and Yasser Arafat was very close to sign a deal, right? Uh, but they, but they eventually it fell apart. You know, Abbey was uh, vaccinated. Uh, and, and ever since then, I think um, the hope of peace is just slipping away and away. Um, now it's even even getting more and more difficult. And also, I think um, it's a fact that the, uh, the Israelis are making advances uh, in terms of making more settlements in the West Bank um, and. Um, um, the territory is the, the that's the area A, right? In West Bank, uh, it, it, you know, it's um, it's it, it's totally fragmented right now. Um, so, in my view, there are also technical difficulties of implementing a um, uh, two-state solution. Now, in in Israel, remember during the 2020 U.S. presidential election, when there was um, the prospect that. Trump was about to lose the election. You know, Netanyahu was even talking about totally annexing um, the West Bank, right? He thinks that uh, that would be a good opportunity. I mean, the opportunity is slipping away if uh, if not doing this within that window of opportunity. Um, and there's actually quite wider support within Israel for that idea. Um, the um, as I said, you know, the the the, the population trend, the demographic trend. It's not helping either. I mean, you know, you have a larger, ever increasingly larger percentage of the, the people in Israel um, are the more religious people. You know, they're the Orthodox Jews, um, and uh, um, and and to be honest, I'm I'm actually very familiar with the situation in Israel. Even the high rocketing uh, housing prices in Tel Aviv and surrounding areas are driving more and more young people 
in support of the idea of、uh, you know living in the settlements across the red,、uh, across the green line. So、um, it's, it's a very difficult situation. To be honest with you, I, I'm very pessimistic. I don't think that the, the two-state solution、um, is within reach at all anytime、mm-hmm. soon. And this is particularly so with this war going on. I mean, this just cannot add at a worse time. Probably one good thing out of this is that it's quite maybe likely or maybe possible that、um, you know after、uh, the Israeli forces have totally taken over. Uh, Gaza.、Uh, there might be a time when the both regions、uh, may be allowed by the, by the Israelis to、uh, to be governed at least by one administration, whether it be Fatah or some other organization.、Uh, so eventually,、uh, you know, when we talk about peace process, at least there is one、um, organization or one entity that is in,、uh, representing the entirety of the Palestinian population. Uh, in both Gaza and and West Bank,、uh, Professor Barden, let's shift the focus to the regional factors in the conflict. Foreign ministers from the Arab League held an emergency meeting to discuss political steps to stop the violence. How do you view the potential solutions they might propose? Well, I mean, I agree with everything Professor Gong has just said. So, you know, we are in a terrible situation,、um, and and there's no easy or quick fixes here. But it may just be the the scale of this crisis will force people to do things they otherwise they wouldn't have done. You know, last week、um, the prospects of a two-state solution just seemed impossibly remote. This week, in some ways, it seems even worse because of the of the conflict. And yet, this may be the crisis that、um, that finally precipitates change. Now, you know, we talk about the role of China. China has the the capacity to to play a significant role if it works with、uh, Arab states in the region. And works with uh, uh, U.S. and Europe. Possibly, if there's, if there's some sort of common agreement on the need to find a durable, a just, and, and a durable political solution, we might begin to see some shift in that direction. And the key is, of course, getting political will.、Uh, there isn't the political will there at the moment to do that. But this crisis may generate that political will. If people come to understand there is no hope for a, la- a lasting peace, we can't get on with our lives. And most people, most. Uh, Palestinians and Israelis alike just want to get on with life and 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 not be worried by conflict. I mean, there are extremists、um, in all communities, but they're actually in a minority. So, if people come to understand, we're not going to be able to live the lives we want for ourselves and for our children unless we get some sort of political solution. That may open the space for that to begin to happen.、It、won't happen straight away,、um, but this might be the turning point. Mm-hmm. Professor Gong, very briefly, how do you view the potential solutions from the Arab community? Um, I think at this point the Arab community is preoccupied with minimizing the civilian casualties that are likely to happen、uh, in, in Gaza and providing more humanitarian assistance.、Um, I think、um, you know this is one direction that it can do a lot of things. But in terms of、uh, trying to slow、uh, the IDF,、uh, uh, slow them, slow them down, and, and, and try to prevent them from taking more military actions, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, they're not going to listen to that.、Um, uh, w- 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 and another thing I can think of is that try what the Arab League can do is to、um, try to contain this conflict、uh, within Gaza, or at least within um, uh, Israel, the state of Israel,、uh, at least somehow you know constrain、uh, the Hasbaras in the north and and the Syrians and even the Iranians from taking actions.、Uh, You know, we don't need to have to, to see this war to be further expanded. 
Uh, it has to be contained within the state of Israel. Thanks, Dr. Zhang Gong, professor with the University of International Business and Economics, and Dr. Greg Barden, professor of global Islamic politics at Deking University. This is Road Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. The China-Europe freight trains has grown into a flagship project and landmark brand of the Belt and Road Initiative since operation began 10 years ago. According to a newly released white paper on the BRI, China-Europe freight trains have reached more than 200 cities in 25 European countries and more than 100 cities in 11 Asian countries and regions. The trains have completed 78,000 trips and shipped more than 340 billion worth of cargo. The annual transportation value of the train rose more than eight times from $8 billion US dollar to $75 billion US dollar between 2016 to 2021. And its proportion in the total trade volume between China and Europe increased from 1.5 to 8% during the period. To talk more about this, joining us on the line is Dr. Wang Yiwei, Zhang Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang. Thank you. Professor, based on this data, what do you think has been the biggest contribution of the China-Europe free trends over the past decade? What role have they played? Firstly, uh, the China-Europe uh, Rail Express uh, very successful projects you know, under the Bell Road Initiative uh, for the three major reasons. Uh, the first reason, of course, uh, the cost is only one-fifth of the air transportation and the timing from China to reach European cities, only one-third of from traditional maritime transportation. So that's a competitive advantage. Now, secondly, uh, this Rail Express connects China as a world uh, factory and uh, Europe as the uh, most advanced economy, the consumer. So manufacturer, consumer, uh, two markets uh, connect each other. Uh, it's a primary process for the globalization. Thirdly, it's not just about uh, logistics. It's also about, I think, the re-globalization, re-industrialization. Uh, for instance, Duisburg, uh, which was connected with Chongqing uh, 12 years ago, Duisburg actually starts the belt uh, a city uh, port in uh, Germany, in Europe. Uh, but because of the Rail Express, uh, many industries, particularly for the automobiles industries, now gathered around the Duisburg city. So this city actually uh, gets uh, 2.0 uh, uh, you know, development. So enjoy the prosperity from the uh, globalization. So that's, I think, uh, so many cities were rushing for the, uh, this uh, rail express for the re-industrialization and the re-globalization. Many may think it's all about moving goods by rail, but what specific economic and trade opportunities have the China-Europe free trends create to businesses and industries along the routes they operate in? Yes, uh, because of uh, the many landlocked countries, like uh, I'm currently visiting Pakistan, that can through the China-Europe uh, rail express 
to uh, access to the ocean, to the sea. So this, uh, not just the land, but also sea, uh, logistically, mutually connected, that's uh, very crucial. And the integration of the transportation system, uh, given that uh, in the history there are different railway uh, uh, systems. So now it's uh, uh, the technology and uh, uh, with the harmonization of the different systems contribute. So it's very convenient to uh, promote the logistics. And also along the, uh, the rail, there are more industries in the economic zones, uh, industrial park, all these uh, contribute to prosperity, common prosperity for the, for, for the Eurasia countries and cities. Mm-hmm. Professor, tell us more about his influence on global supply chains. How has the efficient operation and expansion of the trends over the past decade impacted global supply chains? Well, uh, particularly during the pandemic uh, period, the traditional maritime transportation was uh, uh, suspended and even stopped. The air transportation also very limited. So the, from the land, the China uh, Europe Rail Express, uh, with uh, to not just to, uh, you know stand loss of the uh, medical equipment and uh, like uh, facilities like the mask to Europe to help the European countries to, to deal with the pandemic, uh, but also I think uh, stabilize the supply chain uh, because of the external market shrinking, uh, and then many countries uh, economies shrinking also. So now that they are expressed because they are, they are so not so much people. They only, you know, the drivers you know, with they are. So they can, uh, they can, can have the, uh, the privileges to connect the two different parties, different markets, to help provide the uh, necessary uh, consumer products to, to, uh, to make sure the life to be back to normal. Then looking ahead, how do you envision its role evolving in the context of global trade? What innovative developments and functions are being explored to further enhance the uh, network? Well, this uh, uh, the China uh, Rail Express, not just connect uh, countries, but also cities, not just uh, uh, bilateral, even now uh, uh, multilateral, uh, not just uh, traditional logistic, but also digitalized. Uh, uh, so it's an e-commerce, uh, for instance. Now it's very uh, popular. Uh, so and also promote uh, some regional development, for instance in uh, India, because they are two uh, very important ports, the Hermes uh, and also uh, Allah, uh, you know, from the, uh, the the mountain port. So most of the Hermes, they well, they can promote some of the Xinjiang's uh, connections with Central Asia, with Europe. So it's, it's, I think it's a new kind of the opening and the reform. Professor, the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation, marking the 10th anniversary of the BRI, will be held next week. Meanwhile, China has put forth three global initiatives, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and Global Civilization Initiative. How does the BRI align with these initiatives, and how do these efforts collectively contribute to China's vision of enhancing global cooperation, connectivity, and mutual development? Firstly, uh, development is the key to solve all other problems. So now the Road Initiative uh, is a, a development-oriented globalization. So contribute to the Global uh, Development Initiative, which 
uh, basically with the hundred images of the strategies uh, with the SDG goals. And uh, secondly, development is a, pre, uh, is a foundation for the security, but the security is a precondition for uh, development. And only uh, common security uh, can achieve the common development. And sustainable de- uh, security can contribute to the sustainable development. So that's reason we also have the Global Security Initiative, which uh, promotes the people-centric development and also people-centric security concept, uh, which uh, cooperative security, common security, and uh, sustainable security, new security concepts. All this will contribute to the different cultures, different political systems, need learning from each other. So... The global development, and the security, and the solarization initiative jointly with the BRI contribute the committee of the shared for mankind. Thanks, Professor Wang. That's Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean-Mana Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. This is Road Today. We'll be back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back. You are listening to Road Today. The International Monetary Fund has downgraded its 2023 global growth estimates, slightly given growing global divergences and little margin for policy error. Global growth is forecast to slow from the 3.5% in 2022 to 3% in 2023 and 2.9% in 2024, according to its latest World Economic Outlook. The growth forecast remains well below historical standards, with the annual average growth at 3.8% in the period of 2000 to 2019. The IMF said the slowdown is more pronounced in advanced economies than in emerging markets and developing economies, as policy tightening in advanced economies start to bite. So for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Einar Tengen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. So, Aina, first of all, the latest World Economic Outlook by the IMF says this year the global growth remain well below the historic average of 3.8% in the past 20 years. What do you think are the main factors affecting the global economy today? A slowdown in uh, manufacturing the services, tighter monetary policy being adopted by global central banks, and also the state of conflicts that are out there. That all of them are affecting people's confidence, uh, their willingness to invest in the future uh, between the political and economic headwinds. Very difficult to uh, see a clear path for most businesses. Mm-hmm. And the IMF knows that a full recovery towards the uh, pre-pandemic trends appears increasingly out of reach. It's especially in the emerging and developing economy. So what's your take on this assessment by the IMF? And what do we need to see a more coordinated response at the global level to really get the growth back on track? Well, there's a number of questions there. First off, uh, we we seem to be entering a new economic paradigm uh, in which wealth is going to transfer from previous um, uh, colonial states, uh, perhaps back to 
the uh, Global South and the areas that it was originally taken for, from. Uh, and the reason for this is that uh, the developed economies are less competitive. And a lot of the reason is because of wage inflation. Uh, that's one of the ironies here is that uh, the global central banks keep raising rates, but they're, you know, they can really only affect demand, but they cannot affect the wages being paid. And we see that playing out in the United States with the United uh, Auto Workers Union, etc. Um, it's just you cannot compare the U.S.'s um, average wage monthly is eight times what it is in China. And in, in um, places like Vietnam, uh, it's four times um, less than it is in China. So you have global disparities in the amount of wages being paid. That has a direct effect on any industry which is dependent on labor. Mm -hmm. In terms of what is necessary, uh, obviously coordinated uh, advances by all countries involved. Uh, this idea that I win if you lose is not working. If it was, the world would be in a much better place than it is today. Mm. And as you mentioned, the IMF said important divergences are appearing. The slowdown is more pronounced in advanced economies than in emerging markets and developing economies. So could you explain it more? And why is it? Well, that's what I was uh, referring to earlier. I mean, wage inflation, the, the fact that uh, wages are so much higher in advanced uh, countries. Uh, in Europe, it's an issue about energy. Uh, the When they were taken away from the very cheap natural gas that was coming from uh, Russia, they had to replace it with gas uh, that is three times more expensive coming from the United States and other places. And this has had a devastating effect on uh, the industry, especially in places like uh, Germany, where literally uh, the you know, BASF, which is a very large chemical producer, uh, they use uh, energy both in terms of transforming uh, uh, things into useful products, but also uh, they also, not only for the energy side, but they use it as the feedstock uh, for a lot of their uh, products. So they've in essence left Germany and the car companies are also facing the same issue. The amount of wages that they have to pay, uh, the energy costs have made them uncompetitive competitive in their own homeland. And that's why you're seeing some pushback, um, uh, uncertain pushback coming from Europe about uh, Chinese EVs. Uh, this is a, a kind of a, a protective way of looking at it. But German car companies, half their profits come from China. They do not want to be shut out of this market. So it is a very, very difficult uh, situation. Like I said, a coordinated response would be much better than this kind of piecemeal approach to things. Mm -hmm. And inflation still remains a headache for a lot of countries. And many countries are not expected to return to inflation target until the year 2025, as IMF uh, uh, pointed out. So all eyes are now turning to monetary policy. So what do you think about the recent move by the central banks in the US and Eurozone to tighten the interest rates? Well, it's kind of economic suicide. Um, you, you're concerned about inflation, yes, 
Uh, unfortunately, the inflation is coming from uh, the wage side, which you cannot control. So you're, you're just, in essence, depressing the economy uh, for no particular gain. Uh, there should be um, a, you know, a revisit of this whole policy and an understanding that the economy has to continue on. Yes, inflation is an issue, but it's just one of many. This kind of blind adherence that somehow controlling inflation will make the world better and economies uh, more efficient is wrong. The U.S has, as I keep saying, differentials in wages, also in the cost of materials and energy, uh, as do other countries. And it, these are the factors that are going into uh, competitiveness, competitiveness globally. And this is something China understands as they continue to reduce the amount of cost that goes into their manufacturing area, trying to be more efficient, uh, both in terms of the hardware and software, but also in terms of transactions. And this is going to be increasingly important as it allows, uh, especially countries in uh, the Global South, uh, ASEAN, to trade more efficiently uh, with places like China. Uh, Europe and America seem to be shying away from that, and this is going to affect their overall competitiveness in the long term. Mm -hmm. And where is the risk of the economists perhaps raising the interest rates by too much? Will it stifle the growth for the years to come? Or how do you see all of this affecting the more vulnerable economies of the world? Well, it's both going to depress uh, economic activity. Uh, remember, once money is lost, it isn't just found again. You have a tremendous amount of economic displacement, and a lot of that occurs among small and medium-sized business entities. Why is that important? Well, in almost every single developed country, you're talking between 70 and 80% of all new jobs, existing uh, economic activity, GDP, etc. So when you start eating into your own economic infrastructure, you're in essence not going to recover that easily. Uh, in terms of the rest of the world, you have a situation where these poor countries are mired in debt. Uh, dollar, uh, you know, are increasing in terms of values. That means that the debt they have that it's denominated in dollars is more expensive. They have to pay more money at the same time that these central banks are depressing the world economy, requiring other central banks to raise their rates in order to defend their currencies. Therefore, they don't have either the means to pay off these higher debts. So it's, it's a downward spiral. And for some reason, uh, the Fed and the IMF is not addressing it directly. Mm. And let's talk about the conflict between Israel and Palestinians over there. So what's the impact from this conflict on the global economy is going to be, do you think? Well, we've seen already that oil and fertilizer have been uh, affected. Uh, Israel is involved, um, it, well, that area is involved in about 3% of world fertilizer production. Uh, that obviously has an impact, especially at a time when global warming has affected a tremendous amount of agricultural uh, output. And uh, obviously, oil increases are not going to help the economies of uh, these you know, struggling nations that need energy. There's also this issue of contagion. Bombs have not been the answer for economic issues. In fact, they go against it. They detract from anybody's willingness and ability to invest. Uh, so, you know, what we have here is more uncertainty 
which is going to depress investment, which is going to further uh, push the world economy downward. That was Einar Tengen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. Malaysian Prime Minister Datuk Seri Anwar Ibrahim has announced an initiative to promote the use of local currency, the ringgit, in international trade. He said that discussions with countries including Indonesia, Thailand and China have resulted in agreements to use the ringgit for significant investments. The Prime Minister emphasized that around 20 to 28 percent of major investments from China are now conducted in the Malaysian currency. He also mentioned that completely ending reliance on the U.S. dollar is challenging, but Malaysia will proactively use its local currency in trade to stabilize the ringgit's value amidst global market fluctuation. So to delve into the story, let's have Dr. Yao Shujie, Chong Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Yao. Hello. Professor, can you elaborate on the factors that influenced Malaysia's decision to increase the usage of the ringgit local currency in international trade and reduce its reliance on the U.S. dollar? Malaysia is just a typical example uh, for many countries uh, who have been uh, fairly uh, reluctant to be entirely dependent on uh, the U.S. dollar for international trade investment and even for uh, currency reserve. Uh, due to a number of reasons, I think the U.S. dollar is far too dominant. And secondly, I think the U.S. economy, the U.S. government have, re- have frequently using the dominant position to get benefit for the United States at the expenses of the smaller countries, in this case, uh, uh, Malaysia. Malaysia is an emerging economy. Per capita income is now reaching nearly the level of high income economy level. So Malaysia have a significant impact in the ASEAN, uh, you know, the, the economy block in, in ASEAN. Uh, the council decision to use link is trying to get, uh, number one, to reduce the risk of uh, entirely depending on the U.S. dollar. And, and number two is to exploit the possibilities that can uh, stabilize and support the value of linkage, uh for the national benefit of Malaysia. Uh, and by working with China, uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, and the rest of the, uh, the world, of, uh, especially the emerging and developing countries, I think there would be a, a significant uh, in, you know, repercussion effect uh, on other countries to mm. see whether Malaysia action is going to be beneficial for the country itself and also for the uh, partner countries such as the, the, the China and, and Indonesia we just mentioned. Professor, could you please elaborate more on the challenges Malaysia faced by relying on the U.S. dollar for trade? How does using the uh, ringgit, the local currency, mitigate these challenges? Well, the, 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 tal- the challenges of trying to uh, digress away from dependency of the U.S. dollar is the U.S. dollar itself. The U.S. dollar, as I mentioned, have the dominant position in the world. That means many, many small countries have to depend on U.S. dollar because so far, uh, U.S. dollar is the most uh, you know, stable and reliable currency, uh, unfortunately or fortunately. Uh, it depends on uh, where your position. Now, um, 
by by mitigating uh you know this risk and also how to digress away from the US dollars I think there are a number of ways first of all you have to do this gradually and and secondly I think you have to see whether there's a positive response from the trading partners such as the, the major trading partner within ASEAN and also the 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 biggest economies such as China uh, and the, and some other countries in the world so uh it is a pro and cons i mean the blinket itself is a small currency it still bears some risk and it have to be recognized uh, by the other countries seeing that blinket can sustain this kind of international shock uh at least to some extent like the us dollars so this is the biggest question mark and this is why the application of uh, using lingek as the international currency for trade it would take time and it, it have to be doing in a step by step uh you know approach rather than doing in a in a major way Professor, about the recent agreements between Malaysia, China, Indonesia, and Thailand to use local currencies in trade, what does it signify for the economic dynamics of the region? Well, um, China is the biggest trading partner and is now also the biggest investor in ASEAN and vice versa. Uh, ASEAN is the biggest trading bloc uh, for China. So the, uh, the member states, in ASEAN, particularly uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand, they are the, the most important uh, major, uh, you know, member in in the uh, in the economic block of ASEAN. So it actually have a very important uh, economy implications of the cooperation between uh, these countries, and there will be a significant, uh, you know, long term effect if the experiment. Of using ringgit or the Thai bar, or, or in the in the Indonesia currency, uh, and it turned out to be successful. And not only uh, you know being able to use the local currency to mitigate the risk of using U.S. dollar alone, it also would give some confidence uh, for the national currency uh, when they go out of the national border. So they 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 would be some sort of uh, fairly significant and long term. And this long-term effect would also affect the other countries. Mm-hmm. Professor, as you mentioned earlier, other ASEAN countries may follow suit, shifting away from U.S. dollars. We've seen an increasing number of countries, including Malaysia, India, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, etc., are moving away from using the U.S. dollar in international uh, transactions. How do you look at the reasons behind the trend? The reason behind the trend is uh, you have to start from the, the year 2008 when the financial crisis uh, in the world that hit many countries really hard. And the only country which benefits from this uh, international turmoil is actually the United States, who actually initiated the international crisis uh, you know, in a fairly ironic manner. So a uh, lot of uh, medium-sized and small, smaller countries, particularly those countries in the G20 member states, apart from the few uh, industrialized economies who are the close economy allies of the United States. This country, they feel that they are getting stronger and stronger. So why they have to pay a dividend, uh, a no-gain dividend to the United States because of the U.S. dollars? So this becomes a very hot issue for every country to 
consider is like any alternative uh, you know, currency that can be used to replace the dollars. It's not just the Malaysia. Indeed. Thanks, Dr. Yao. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Chong Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. Bye for now.